think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 62 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 63rd episode. I'm Ron Carboneau. Um, it's in Rainville. Such enthusiasm. <laughs> yes. And uh, we are back after a short absence. Uh, last week, uh, I received a mild head injury uh, from playing hockey, uh, which was unfortunate. <laughs> uh, but there you go, which has kind of put me off my game this week. And I haven't had the occasion to follow a lot of news uh, because I haven't really been able to read for much of the week. The the eye patch is a very nice touch. Very, I am very James Bond villain. I am still wearing an eye patch on account of persistent double vision. Um, so that is that is good. Have you consider getting metal jaws or perhaps a uh, razor tipped fedora i think you know i think job interviewers at that point would think you're just trying too hard you know for the bond villain sort of uh lead henchman kind of role you uh you apply and then you add yeah. your uh i think they prefer to call them hench team leads now <laughs> but yes uh creative henching gba plus it's all over the place yes so uh yeah no i do have an eye patch right now which does lend uh the boys short pants a certain more uh, nautical flair than we're <laughs> used to, to having but shit i would have worn my yachting gear if i'd known that you which you, of course you would possess also uh of course i'd like to announce uh now that i have a head injury that i have uh, joined the liberal party and uh will be <laughs> <laughs> i will be working in pmo uh no so but um so we wanted to start off talking about uh, the NSI COP report, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians report that came out uh, like a week and a half ago, maybe? I've, I have a very so, indistinct sense of time. Something like that, yeah. yeah. It, it hasn't been out for too, too long. Um, Thursday of last week, Wednesday, Thursday of last week. Um, the report was, say, interesting. Um, so it's the first report of NSI COP, which is the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Uh, I'll repeat sort of the general disclaimers about the committee. It's not a committee of parliament, but rather a committee of parliamentarians. Hence the name. Um, so it's more executive branch than than legislative. Yeah. Um, it's a, uh, I mean, a committee of parliamentarians drawing from all the parties uh, House of Commons and Senate. Yes, and it was last in the news when uh, our T- dear friend Tony Clement, Tony Clement was removed from his position as a member of NSI COP yes. for his hog leaking. Yes. Um, and Gord Brown was one of the other members, conservative member, but he passed away earlier this year. Right. Um, so there are two conservative vacancies on the committee um, as they go on to whatever work is next on the docket for them. Um but the report was interesting not only because it was the first report, but also because it was on such a politically sensitive issue. Mm-hmm. It, their first report wasn't something related to the inner workings of any of our given national security agencies. It was instead a highly political, highly partisan shit show. Okay. Or what became a shit show, uh, which is namely the prime minister's trip to India. The gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to sum up the report, the report actually wasn't all that interesting, I would say, um, in part because of the amount of redactions. Um, the interesting tidbits from the report, for me, were just like little operational details like that uh, E-inset, so I think it's E-division, Integrated National Security Assessment Team, um, had tried to had you know gotten some of this intel and tried to pass it along the chain but like they left it on someone's voicemail who was out on vacation super like, good like the typical public service that is a very public blunder <laughs> that you think of um sort of reminiscent of like the uh dnc emails and like the fbi being down the street from them and like never bothering to go in person and instead just like calling the public line and dealing with like a low-level IT guy when the Russians were hacking the DNC. So like, I mean, it didn't speak uh, tremendously well, uh, ultimately about procedure. Um, and I think most of the agencies conceded to some sort of failings in their processes. Yes. Um, what was interesting is there was an order paper question back after the India trip that asked specifically about procedures, security procedures relating to screening of people being allowed near the prime minister, et cetera, on account of the Jasper Latwal thing. And it was notable because the order paper question 
in question did not actually even attempt to answer that particular like it's one of those big questions with a lot of moving parts sure. to it and that one was they just straight up did not include a response <laughs> which uh, i certainly found odd at the time though it seems as though they were you know perhaps looking into this at their own levels and uh disclosing perhaps Nana Saikop what is happening, but it it did strike me as odd that a, a question by a parliamentarian through a formal process did not elicit even a token response. Hmm. A token non-response, even. Sure. Which, we, like, people who work on the Hill in opposition are, are plenty used to receiving token non-responses to, to questions they ask. It's not rare. So, looping back to the report itself, um, if you watched the... Actually, one of the areas that was interesting was Dan point two. The report, one of the areas where it was unredacted was actually in the findings around his actions, and it was actually not very critical at all of him. Um, said that there was no clear indication that he'd been directed by PMO um, to speak to media, although he had coordinated with PMO getting things like a list of journalists to reach out to. So yes. like. It looks pretty... How, yeah. how direct it was, I think, is still questionable from the report. Um, but they don't cast his judgment um, into doubt too, too much. They say, no, a mistake was probably made to brief journalists off the record. It should have been on the record. Yeah. But beyond that, these are operational decisions that were made under stress. So, yeah. whatever. I mean, they did better... I, yeah, at least they didn't just shout, this is on background, and immediately begin <laughs> speaking. So they're doing better than some people. Um, so, I mean, all in all, the report, reading through the report, the 50-some-odd pages, is pretty meh. I found Daniel Jean's testimony before committee more interesting. But I guess what's interesting about the NSI COP report is, you know, the bigger questions that are raised, um, the way it was redacted, things along those lines. So initially when the report came out, I was looking to see what the reaction of the political parties have been because NSI COP has, to its credit, been operating behind the curtain, which is what it should be doing. And you haven't seen any comment from the uh, parliamentarians on the committee talking about whether it's functioning fluidly, successfully, everything yes. seems to be working well. And we don't really have a sense of how that sausage is being made. Um, when the report came out, critics within the parties, uh, NDP and conservative, jumped on the redactions and talking about the politicization, but it was never the parliamentarians that sit on the committee themselves. Right. Um, so, for instance, for the NDP taking the lead there was Nathan Cullen, um, who is not the, or not the parliamentarian on the committee. No. And I can't remember who it was for the conservatives. I think it was several, but it included Andrew Scheer. Um, I mean, it's not like Tony Clement is on the committee anymore. Or in the Conservative Caucus anymore, for that matter. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, but all of that is to say, it was, it was interesting to see sort of how they na uh, navigated the minefields here. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about the substance of their criticisms. It primarily focused around the redactions and what was redacted from the reports. So first of all, note just stylistically, the reports are redacted in a way that is different than access information. On ATIPS, depending on how much information they're redacting, they'll tell you that they've redacted, you know, pages 5 to 75. Right. Or they'll put sort of these ATIP tartan boxes over so the sections tartan, of text. The ATIP tartan is, is some departments and not others. Some of oh, them yeah? is really just black out, like black highlighter, sort of in the classic style. Uh, the ATIP gingham squares are certainly <laughs> very interesting, though, uh, which I think Justice does it. Some others do as well. And you'll see at the top of the page once, uh, like, if you see redaction on a page, you'll see at the top the, the, the relevant section under which that uh, information occurred. was redacted. Yeah. So in this particular report, there's basically carte blanche for PMO to redact anything um, that they deem requiring redaction. So it's really at their discretion. Yeah. Um, this was the way the act enabling NSI COP um, was structured. Um, when pressed on PMO's role in the redactions, they claimed initially that PCO um, did redactions and they brought in to say security officials, which I think is just a deflection because PCO is at the center of the report. So saying, don't worry, the agency under investigation was in charge of redactions. Well, I mean, doesn't, yeah. Doesn't look so good. It doesn't sound good, but that does in fact seem to be what happened. Yes, yes. Uh, it is almost certainly the case. Yes, um, which w raises that classic 
quiz custodiat ipsos custodes question <laughs> that we so love to ask. In, in, in you want to translate that to not who, a dead language? Who watches the watchers themselves? Who watches the watchmen? Who redacts the redactors? The ipsos, I think, adds a certain <laughs> themselves quality to it. It, it does. Right? Which, no, you need to understand that it's, it's a language of many nuances. So the the interesting comparator here would be uh, CERC reports. Yes. Um, so the CERC... Security Intelligence Review Committee. Yes. And what's the sort of structure of that committee where we have the NSI cop, which is the National Work? Seven to nine people. There's a chairperson. Okay. So they sit next. They have an office next to the the council that advises the prime minister on the council that advises the prime <laughs> minister on senators or something. CERC is like quasi independent, but they're appointed. Uh, the history of CERC has been that it's been a fairly multipartisan organization. It's kind of a blue ticket sort. Or blue ticket, blue ribbon kind of thing, where it's like yeah. Bob's Ray, uh, that sort of person. So one of the recent uh, ones just pulled from the top was Deb Gray. Yeah, um, Deb's Gray. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> who was the first Reform MP? Uh, yes, yes. Um, has a great birthday suit joke. Um, was I believe she was the chairperson not too long ago. Uh, of course. I mean, people will instantly think of Arthur Porter and other ones. So, I mean, Cirque, I've forgotten about him. Cirque is not yeah. without its uh, scandals. Um, but the idea of Cirque for, you know, up, up until the creation of NSI COP was that it was the primary oversight body for the service, being CSIS. Yeah. Um, the service. The, the service. The service. Capital S. <laughs> and uh, so you have the Order and Council appointed... Uh, board members maybe um, and then they had a secretariat of full-time civil service okay. that supported them and so they didn't meet all that often but sure. they, they meet as required to sort of hash out these reports and uh, every year there would be the public CERC report of their findings and it would detail uh, in very high level uh, some of the things that they looked into investigations into alleged mistreatment or uh powers such as i was gonna say enhanced interrogation that's not right (laughs) (laughs) Um, surprise (laughs) no i was thinking of the disruption powers um, permitted under c51 um is is one of the things that c51 mandated that they um report just their oversight that they don't do the kind of like church committee stuff that like they found out about the cia in the 70s and and all that yeah just they're not running completely off the chain like so what's interesting about this whole thing is, and I actually, I don't have a clear answer for this. Had I looked a little harder, maybe I could have, but you get what you pay for. Um, that great advertising for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, killing it. Uh, which is... Who, so that's, that's good. Like, so far this week, yeah, sorry, I have a brain injury. Other guy, I'm like, yeah, you get what you pay for. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's, we're not doing media requests or, yeah, we're not submitting media requests here. We'll, we'll leave this to the real journalists. Um, is who redacts the CERC... Well, not who redacts the CERC report because the primary public CERC report is a public-facing document, but who vets it to ensure that it does not include any secret or top-secret information? Right. Um, I mean, it's likely initially done by their secretariat that supports them. That would make a lot of sense. But is there... Is the service given the option of going through it? I actually don't know. Um, but in, interesting question. So to parallel this to NSI COP, the I mean, if this report had been about the service or CSC or one of the other uh, national security intelligence agencies, it PCO would actually be well placed to do this type of vetting. But just yeah. the fact that it was, it was PCO, <laughs> PCO yeah. vetting PCO. Um, brings up that question of whether or not it was um, self-serving yeah, in well, the way that they redacted you it. You had mentioned when we were chatting about this that there's some suspicion that this was in fact the case. Yes. The PCO was overly protective of itself according to internal sources. Yes, not my internal sources to be clear. <laughs> yes, to me. Yeah. Um, but Mercedes uh, Stevenson made a uh, post about this on Twitter that her, some of her sources... Well, in my the... internal sources said the same thing, so... <laughs> I think you got to take it seriously. In themselves that had suggested it's that like a country club <laughs> had suggested that uh, or alleged that PCO was perhaps not doing the most unbiased job in report uh, in redactions, and that uh, it was done in such a way as to give the RCMP sort of 
the short end of the stick and hold, holding the bag if it if well that will, will teach the RCMP to not be a central agency uh, <laughs> that, that has the power to review these things. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm sure they would uh, love it. Yeah, if you get to grade your own papers, you know, it actually uh, you can you can do pretty well. Um, so I mean, I think that covers most of what I'd want to talk about with NSI cop. I will bring up my land my long-standing grievance that i feel like a lot of the academics who talk about this no no one in particular <laughs> no one in particular, um, yeah. but a lot of the academics who talk about nsi cop overlook and it's the i mean it's the other half but it's how nsi cop itself functions yeah um which is that you have mps who are um completely unsupported by their political staff which is essentially yes. unique among um, how our well, politicians operate in the are, federal level. It's worth noting also that these MPs like do not get any breaks because they are on, S- on NSI cop. Yes. Like they they go to NSI cop twice a week, I believe. I, I like, actually it's don't quite know. often. Uh, it's either once or twice a week. I think twice, and like still have normal duties on top of that. And an MP's schedule is is fairly demanding uh, when they're sitting. Especially they have house duty, they have committees, all these things. So it really can end up being quite a bit of extra work that they get no extra support or leeway from their, their caucus on and also aren't allowed to bring staff and sort of help them sift through it. So yes. it, is, it is a big ask of parliamentarians. So if this were any other committee, um, typically how it would work is, you know, they're not subpoenaing, that's not the right word, but they're requesting documents, you know, hun- likely hundreds of pages of documents. Yeah. Um, and then you would have, uh, the Library of Parliament go through the documents and do sort of their questions for witnesses. And in tandem to that, you have the political process, that's political staff doing the exact same yes. thing, and coming up with their questions, and then parliamentarians uh, blend the two of them to inform their yeah. uh, interrogation of witnesses at committee. I would love to talk about the the sort of influence that the Library of Parliament has through its like committee analyst uh, posts and reports on on committee uh, questioning, like the, the sort of soft power they wield yeah, uh, in our parliamentary system. I mean, I, I think frankly, like they do a really, really, really good job, uh, and it's not not to impugn their, you know, I don't think they're like, our shadow government or anything. But, sorry, I don't want to <laughs> the, the deep, the deep but, uh, state. I, d- I just want to preface, like, I, yeah. I, let's not go into that now. But I just want to say, like, I think that is an interesting question that we should talk about at some point. And also, I, I don't think that it's necessarily like nefarious or bad. I just think it is something that is underexamined. But that that is the parallel that I'm drawing here yeah. is that with NSI COP, you have the secretariat that supports NSI COP. Um, that is. Composed of people from the RCMP, yeah. um, Rennie Marcou, who heads it, is former uh, high up at RCMP. Um, fantastic individual. Uh, I'm not uh, impeaching her by any means. But it's just the, the nature of it is that these are individuals who are mid-late career civil servants who've built their careers at CSIS, CSC, RCMP, are they going back after a posting at NSI COP? Because NSI COP doesn't have, you know, a big ladder to climb. Right. So there's the question of, are they, like, fundamentally when people go over from RCMP or CSIS to work at NSI COP, it's like their colleagues, are they looking at them being like, this person's going to be snitching on me now? Or like, are they going to bring our perspective to NSI COP? And yeah. like, both of those are problematic in their own ways. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like, this is, it is really an unsolvable problem in a democracy, I think, of, like, what do you do with this sort of class of person who gets to look at state secrets and produces state secrets in a way, um, and it's just, I think it's an unsquarable circle to some degree, and, like, we we sort of have varying degrees of civilian oversight that they always are going to be problematic in some way or another. I don't really think it's a fully solvable problem, but uh, but to, yeah, obviously it's we you know opinions differ on to, to, to tie what mitigated to tie the bow all back together. This is why I'm a proponent of having uh, political staff as part of the NSI COP process um, because you, I mean, it gives the uh, the ability to have a political lens on national security, yeah, which having career civil servants. Does, does not. not. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, look, you already MPs, have the MPs there. Yeah, but right? MPs not being able to review and not having the time and resources to review the primary documents means that you're relying on briefs 
and questions from these nonpartisan civil servants. And I think any uh, MP would sort of hesitate if you were to tell them from now on at committee, you're only using LOP, Library yeah. of Parliament, questions. Yeah. And they would be a less effective MP as a result. I think that is the case. Um, so I think this is one of the blind spots that academics have is not really understanding the dynamics of how um, political staff work with their, with their, their actual members, their, yeah. their members and yeah. how different members work. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of the practical realities of it is why I don't think having uh, one person vetted into the committee from each of the three parties represented in that committee yeah. or one or two people. Um, represents a substantial expansion of sort of yeah. the scope of that committee or or the national security bubble, if you will, the, the need to know basis. Indeed. Very good. So the the other story that has kind of dominated Ottawa since uh, since we last recorded has been the, the sort of sorry, sordid saga of Raj Graywall. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the Liberal MP for Brampton East, which mm. uh, by, by sheer coincidence is the writing uh, formerly <laughs> represented provincially by uh, one Jagmeet Singh, currently seeking other employment in Burnaby South, and is currently held provincially by his brother, uh, Gurutan Singh. So uh, there is a certain that there's a certain Jagmeet Singh shaped specter hanging over that right now, which is uh, he has he has been clear that he will continue running in uh, in Burnaby. So there there is that. But there's been a lot of head shaking about this and sort of speculation. So the Raj the Raj Grewal story is interesting. Um, we it hasn't come to a definite conclusion. I'll oh, be... it is still very much in motion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll be interested to see the details when this all fleshed out, likely uh, eventually by Mario Dion as the ethics commissioner. Well, or the RCMP. Is the or, yes, <laughs> or the RCMP or some other investigative body. Yes. Um, but like where where it stands is that uh, Raj Grewal, um, I guess, confessed to the PMO. I, I don't know quite the order of events here. Um, that he had a gambling addiction. He was several million dollars in debt, or at least over um, a million dollars. Oh, yeah, yeah. million, maybe in the one, one to two range. Yeah, yes. Um, there was some reporting that was done on his financial arrangements. He came back and did a Facebook video rebutting some of that. We're not really sure where it lands. Yeah, he was a frequent visitor to Casino Lake Lemmy on the Gatineau side. Oh, for Pankathon, you really butchered that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and the story is sort of up in the air, um, until we get more details, well, it's hard you, to pass judgment. You put the cart a little before the horse here in that he announced in, it's, in it's a, a push, statement, it's a pushing horse. Yes. In, in a statement to the, <laughs> that would be such a bad way of doing things. Uh, he pushes the plow. <laughs> this is very innovative. Yes. That, that's actually what their protein super, super cluster is working on. Um, <laughs> So he the protein had, is actually the horse meat. Yes. So he announced it. It gets very tough and muscular <laughs> from from them pushing the plows. <laughs> so it's sort of a one stop shop, sort of symbiosis. Mm. They put they, they grow the, the pulses themselves and then are themselves harvested. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. So that was very stupid. I'm sorry about that. Uh, so he announced in this Facebook post where he announced that he had, he, had, he was resigning for for medical and personal issues uh, that he was in fact resigning uh, from his seat as a member of parliament. Uh, something he has not actually gotten around to doing uh, of yet, and in fact has sort of stepped back from and said, it's all good now, guys. So how, how this actually came out was pretty interesting, and it's notable for anyone who wasn't watching CPAC on that particular day. In uh, So the liberals had sort of led people to believe that Raj Grewal had resigned, which led to a lot of sort of pundits being like, oh. Or was like in the process of drafting his letter to the speaker. Well, yeah. No. Like no. On his way out. No. At this. They had said that they this were po- implying so, he, was, he had already resigned. Bear, bear with me. Okay. This, go ahead. This, this is where the story goes. Go ahead. Um, was that the liberals had sort of insinuated that he had resigned, um, which led a lot of pundits to be critical of uh, Jagmeet's yeah. decision to stay in BC rather than pivot back to Ontario. Which is sort of funny, knowing everything that we know now. But in question period one day, I think it was both the Conservatives and the NDP reusing the name Raj Grewal, and the Speaker cautioned them for naming a member. Yeah, um, which of course is only a thing that you can do if they are a member. 
or mm-hmm. not do if they're if, a member. If they're guess. no longer a member, yes. as the liberals so yes. often they do with... They also cannot be seen in mirrors. With, St- <laughs> <laughs> with Stephen Harper now. Um, which led to, I think it was a point of personal privilege by Nathan Cullen at the end of question period to be like, yo, what's up? Either he's resigned or the liberals have misled the House. Yes, because what they were saying was, we welcome his resignation. Yes, yeah, we welcome really his decision to resign. Which means because, nothing. <laughs> because that had been announced, and that was the defense that Bartis Chagger used with the Speaker, yes. and the Speaker the sort of hand-waved it all away, and everyone said... Yo. It's great when the ref is a guy who runs under your banner, right? Eh? <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. He hasn't resigned yet, question mark. And then um, it, the story was that the resignation was imminent. And then the video came out where he said, now nah, I'm, I'm going to hang around till January and see, yes. see what's up. And then Mark Holland, the liberal whip, announced a little later that he was, in fact, removed from the liberal caucus, and, like, effective immediately from that statement so it was uh yes they kind of cut their losses on that one but he he remains in the house and it's interesting because there's an ongoing this actually raised an interesting point where when people thought he was going to resign that uh he would resign with an ongoing ethics commissioner investigation uh that had been called for Mm -hmm. uh in the spring as a result of totally unrelated stuff where he had gone uh he had he had brought someone whom he was employed by on a part-time basis on the India trip and got this person access to the prime minister at various functions, which, you know, was argued this is a, a breach of of, um, of the ethics code because you're sort of using your parliamentary position to further your private interest by introducing someone who employs you to the prime minister and various ministers, etc. We will we will find out that that investigation apparently will be completed and reported on uh, whether or not he, he remains in office. Uh, the, the president here is Helena Gerges, actually who was a conservative minister who then resigned uh, her seat, and there was an investigation that was completed despite her no longer being a sitting MP. Okay. Uh, so that is the practice there. Um, but yeah, no, it's... Uh, it, it, it Really, the ethics commissioner stuff is kind of a sideshow because it turned out that there was an ongoing RCMP investigation into some sort of connection to, to possible money laundering of drug money to terrorist entities in the middle east which he, he he was not accused of doing just let me be very clear on that but seems to like have that's been how the picked information up. yes picked on, up like his yeah. name came up in chatter on like an investigation into this yes. other thing very the which wire. is like very much a place where you don't want your name to come up <laughs> kind of like the the sort of heroin for isis pipeline is like <laughs> Not exactly where you want to be like, oh, Etienne, great guy. Yeah, love him. Um, <laughs> They're just big fans of the podcast. Maybe, That's maybe, all I can say. Maybe. Uh, but yeah, so that was very weird. So we we have no idea what's going on with the police side of things. Um, nor, nor will we. Nor will we until um, everyone else does. But one thing that was very odd was the prime minister's office had a statement saying that uh, the RCMP is investigating and the Peel Regional Police is not. Which is like, well, hold on a minute. Like, how much do you know about this? And that sort of subplot has kind of died down in recent weeks, but that was a focus. Tom Parkin, uh, erstwhile Sun commentator, wrote uh, a reasonably well closely argued uh, blog post on his website about this, which I think is worth reading, uh, if you can track that down. Uh, um, uh, well, I think it's an interesting question, right? It's like, how much digging did they do before this, and how much sort of damage control did they have ready to go? Clearly not so, enough, because so it's that's, been damaging. That's but, fine. Yeah. What if... So if the RCMP here gives, you know, a one to two day tip off to PMO and to, to Raj himself, like if PMO is informed at roughly the same time as Raj yeah. himself. Then or, they have some time to put the lines together. Or basically as it's going public. Yeah. I think that's pretty kosher. Yes. It's obviously not a situation um, where PMO has known for months in advance. No, like, no, I like, don't think that's the case. That is yeah. not the way RCMP operates. So if they give like a tiny, tiny lead time, I think that is 100% fair game. Um, but if it's a huge lead time, that is obvious a case of substantial wrongdoing. And I, yes. I don't think that's something the RCMP... No, no, I, I don't think it is. It's just interesting, like... I wonder what sort of contingency plan on this was if he, like, didn't come forward with it. Were they gonna sit on it? Like... There's a lot of open questions there. I don't know. I, I don't know how much there's like there is to go down that particular rabbit hole. I, I thought it was just an interesting sort of branch path from this. I don't. I quite don't, sorted tangle. I don't think it's a very interesting one. I, I think. I think in these cases, the RCMP tends to act with the utmost caution. Yeah. 
But no, um, but the RCMP thing is is not really the issue, right? It's like so they then as, heard from the RC, they may have heard from the RCMP like a day or so in advance, and then go to the Peel police and be like, "Are you also investigating? Like, is that normal practice? I don't know." I think that's mildly interesting in, in terms of how you sort of do caucus management when things hit the wall in this kind of way. Yeah, I mean, okay. So, so the answer is here is we we could speculate endlessly, but yeah, we, no, we don't, don't actually have enough information about the RCMP uh, slash other police services investigations to really know. Uh, much. Yes. So one really interesting thing with this was that he, when he sort of had his change of heart, it was around possibly, he, he said he was no longer in debt, then that obviously raised quite a few eyebrows, because when you sort of announce that, like, I have a huge gambling issue, and uh, it requires me to, to step down from this job, um, and obviously in the in sort of national eye, and it's very, you know, I can't imagine it's not a fun time for him or his family. Uh, and then be like, actually, uh, it's all good. Uh, all the money's paid off. It's all super fine. And not expect people to kind of raise their eyebrows a little bit at that. I thought it was kind of odd. He said that it was family money, which like, wow, that's a lot of family money, first of all. Um, and second, like, okay, but I think you may have lost the sort of element of kind of basic trust in the stuff you say at this point. Uh, because the story keeps kind of... That, twisting and turning and, and that's and you fine didn't and, that'll, and that'll be for the ethics commission and others to sort out yes. and ultimately like if you're going to acquire you know x millions of dollar million brackets <laughs> um dollars in a week <laughs> like either you are going like i don't know a guy incredibly right? like... <laughs> clean or incredibly dirty yeah um and so the statement to the lawyer was that it was it was all family money uh so i mean good for him and then it's pretty understandable that you won't want to resign your $170,000 a year job yeah um if you're having you know financial issues it's pretty understandable that you would not want to resign your job under a black cloud and you'd also perhaps good paycheck (laughs) well yeah that's what i mean (laughs) yeah it's uh um so like it's sticky it's messy um yeah. There's like 15 different angles to this. Ultimately, we don't know very much of the overall picture. Well, speaking of sticky, sticky liberal MPs has been kind of a, a subplot of 2018 between this guy and Nicola DiOrio. It's a uh, yeah, yes. So we will see what happens there's, come there's, come 2019. They're sticking sort of around. Both of them. Well, DiOrio has indicated he will be resigning in January. No, I mean, and Graywell, we will see. Stick around for now. Yes, yeah. Graywell, we will see. So let's let's leave them there. Yes, it's a quite a fascinating story, and I guess we will definitely want to talk about the ethics commissioner analysis when that's released uh-huh. finally, because uh, I I think that will make for a fascinating fascinating reading. Um, certainly much more so than the LeBlanc report, which was a huge letdown. Uh, really critically high, or you know, there was a lot of hype around it, but ultimately it just really did not deliver. This is true. Yeah, this is true. Yes. Uh, the third thing we want to talk about was uh, the territory of Yukon. Do you call them the territory of Yukon? Is it just the Yukon territory? I don't really know how to refer to it. I think it'd be the Yukon. The Yukon. Being being a northerner. Yes. A uh, northerner, yes, from, from Fort McMurray. A northerner. Fort McMurray. It's pretty close. It's closer to the Yukon than it is to Calgary. So so let me just... Is that correct? That sounds correct. Like the border? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah by like no, miles. Easily, yeah. easily. Uh, it's about 800 kilometers from Calgary. It is... Probably about. Well, oh, because it's like four, what, like north of four is like the oil sands and like Fort Mackay, and then you're like basically in, and then, in the Yukon, and then you get into Fort Chip, Fort Chip, which Fort is, Chip One, right? Yes, so, yes, okay. Fort Chip One, which is the fly in, fly out uh, indigenous. Uh, I've actually never been out there. Community, well, um, it's fly in, fly con- out, I mean. connected by. Well, it's connected by Winter Road. Okay. Still, though, um, like, if you don't really have much of a reason to go up there. True. Uh, <laughs> um, but, like, I know many people have for various work-related reasons, but okay. my, my work never brought me out to Fort Chip. Uh, you, they, you, they never ordered a pizza there from Boston Pizza? No. From back. <laughs> no. About, about halfway there, but never never the whole way. Never the whole way. Okay. They, they met you halfway. They, <laughs> yeah, they came in. Yeah. We did not have air or drone delivery available sad. quite yet. Very sad. Um, so the, the Yukon bit here is sort of fun to talk about because one, I don't think we've ever talked about the Yukon before. Two, the Northwestern, I don't think anyone really talks about the Yukon. Uh, but let's talk about a little piece of Yukon public policy, and I will credit the it's law real, firm. It's real Yukon gold here. The law firm Faskin, uh, formerly Faskin Martineau. I was wondering, what happened to Martineau? He just pushed off a bus or something? Brand, like 20, <laughs> the two late 2000s branding initiative, I imagine. 
Um, but they wrote an interesting sort of legal brief or primer on the new Yukon lobbying legislation that I sent to Laurent because it had some had some interesting it's tidbits a little juicy, in it. juicy nuggets, sort of a, a a crispy tight skin and a fluffy center when cooked through fully, just much like the the humble Yukon gold, just like Popeyes. Um, so there's actually one or so you're talking about potatoes, right? Not chicken. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Just to just to clarify for Yukon Gold Chicken are the uh, the Arctic chickens that they raise there. Ptarmigans. Actually, do you know a funny story about that? Is uh, there's a town in Alaska called uh, Chicken, um, which is a which was initially like a small kind of gold mining town in the days of of the gold rush, uh, and was so called because it was known for its population of wild ptarmigan, which is a kind of a sort of wild fowl, uh, very delicious apparently, kind of in the, the pheasant family. Um, and being illiterate miners uh, from, from all over North America, they could not spell ptarmigan, which, if, if you're familiar with the word, has a silent P at the beginning. Ptarmigan. Uh, ptarmigan. Um, so instead, they just called it chicken, which is delightful. And I really, I really <laughs> enjoy that. So, sorry. Okay. Excellent. We really, really looped that back around excellent. to the sort of northern connection there. But. Excellent diversion. Yes. Um, so so Faskin has uh, some, some highlights in their brief here. And let, let me read the first one because I think it's the most interesting. Um, for any of the listeners on the show who have followed us for a while, you'll sort of be familiar to our diversions in the law, Conflict of Interest and Lobbying Act because, I mean, they're endlessly fascinating and perhaps um, one of the more misunderstood elements of Ottawa because everyone tends to uh, use American notions of what lobbyists do and who lobbyists are in Canada yes. and apply them to Canada, even though that's not really the case. Yeah. Um, so all the different, I mean, some municipality or some cities, uh, I'm thinking of Toronto, yep. and then many of the provinces have their own lobbying regimes. And it's always interesting to compare them to the federal lobbying regime. And so Yukon, I suppose, has gotten around to uh, introducing a lobbying regime for their one well, I, to their clear, one to three lobbyists. Yeah, every province has a lobbying code of some kind. This is this is the first. I think this was actually the last patch to not be covered, at least in terms of, of provinces, which of course they are not. But I think the brief indicates that this was like the the final frontier okay. of of lobbying uh, regimes. I didn't I didn't read the preface to the brief. I'll you got to read the there. prefaces, man. That's that's where the juicy nuggets are. Um, so, yeah, let me read this bit. It says, after ceasing to lobby, so this is one of the restrictions, after ceasing to lobby, consultant lobbyists are prohibited from becoming employees of Yukon's public service for six months. This may, uh, this change may reflect a concern that consultant lobbyists could be influenced by public servants with the promise of government jobs, which is... It's very interesting as an idea, let me just say that. Sort of hilarious. I mean, territorial government jobs pay pretty well compared to, to many others, uh, just because of the difficulty of attracting people, and they they have the money. But, just, but, yeah, I mean, you know who also makes a lot of money is consultant lobbyists. So, <laughs> I think this, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm a lobbying hawk. I, I believe in, in, you know, strong cooling off periods, this kind of thing. I think that that's totally good and, and fine. I think the notion that you're going to have a bureaucrat sidle up to a, a lobbyist during the meeting and go, hey, you interested in a <laughs> in a good health care plan? <laughs> they have great benefits. It's like not like what's the like payoff? Like, like what are they trying to get here? Like what's where is the sort of like corruption of the public interest, which is like, kind of at the core of why we have lobbying regimes to begin with? Like, I, I just don't really see it. Like you're actually if anything, like you're, you're converting people away from the dark side like it's a it's a you get a medal like it's so for, first and foremost i would not agree with laurent's characterization of lobbyists <laughs> i i think that's pretty obvious um but it's it's just sort of funny because it's sort of the opposite dynamic well, that's what yeah that people worry about yes. usually you're worried about people handing like public servants a fat stack of cash to, yeah. to leave and go be a lobbyist so the revolving door so the revolving door exists in Canada in various forms, be it political staffers to um, political staffers to civil servant jobs, which is one of the revolving doors that was cracked down on through the Federal Accountability Act early yeah. in the Harper uh, government, and like that, I can see more political servants. Uh, sorry, political staffers transitioning to the public service. You can, you can certainly have a debate as to whether or not that's desirable. I I tend to think that it is. Um, civil servants 
leaving. Or, or sorry, yeah. um, uh, staffers transitioning to become consultant lobbyists and the conflicts. That's where the five-year ban comes in. Yeah. And then you have, or two, uh, in-house, that's where you have other bans that come in. I mean, I guess the idea... The, the cooling off period as well as yeah. the five-year ban. Um, and then you also have the idea that that you have consultant lobbyists going and taking up political roles. For instance, uh, a lobbyist who works on, let's say, Fisheries and Oceans file goes and becomes yeah. the chief of staff. Or say you're the... The, the Fisheries and Oceans. Yeah. And there is presently no rules in our lobbying regime, yeah. federally or otherwise, that prevent that. But or like the, if you were the public affairs head at Google and you went to go <laughs> be the chief of staff to the heritage minister since 2015. Like, these, yeah, that would be weird. These are real examples. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so... The emphasis on the public service, I don't know much about how UConn structures its political staffing versus its public service, but like typically the emphasis is around political staff yeah. with consultant lobbyists more so than around yes. public service. Because it's very rare for, and this is actually very common in the US, because the US is really like the top kind of three or four equivalent strata in the Canadian government are staffed by political appointments from various, you know, you know, I mean, it's sort of a, an incubator in between like administrations, DG right? level and up. So yeah. like the top four. Yeah. It's really like strata. a lot. Whereas in Canada, it really is hot, like people move up through the ranks or sort of come from, there is a little bit of coming from outside, but not often from the business world, but not infrequently from like the like university administration world that's been known to happen. But like, you're very rarely going to see, like, I don't know, like, to take a like a mining example, someone from, from you know, some mining company go to become a deputy minister. It just doesn't happen. Very and maybe this is a, a peculiar, peculiarly Yukon problem because their public service is much smaller. That's maybe true. they are much more flexible with this kind of thing. Maybe they don't have this sort of culture of internal seniority and moving up. I think that's that's like a perfectly plausible explanation. I do not know enough about the internal culture of the the Yukon civil service and sort of business community to make that assertion with any kind of confidence. That's so true. if you are a listener in the Yukon and you know uh, you know that ecosystem very well, please do feel free to get in touch. We are happy to hear you out. Um, let me let me pull one other point from the brief. Um, quote for in-house lobbyists, the quote person responsible for the organization must register for all lobbyists connected to the organization. Oh, sorry. That's actually not. The that's right actually one. not uncommon. Yeah, we do that all the time. No, no, no. I, I scrolled too far. Let me okay. let me try this again. Pretend that didn't happen. Okay. In-house lobbyists are only required to register once the lobbying activities for the organization cumulatively across the organizations for all employees reaches twenty hours in a year. It is unclear, and this is uh, the Faskin analysis. Uh, it is unclear what will be included in the calculation of that threshold. Yes. But what's interesting about here is how the bar is dramatically different than the federal level. Well, they took 20. I mean, the number is... <laughs> <laughs> so in the federal, uh, in the federal regime, it's 20% rule. It's the 20% of an individual's time yes. in a given month. Um, so obviously, 20% of one's time in a month, you're calculating it, one, much more regularly. Yeah. And two much greater level we're talking like us maybe two orders of magnitude in difference yeah um in terms of what the yukon is counting versus what the federal government is counting and there has been a lot of issue with the 20 percent rule federally and i think it's certainly one it will eventually be one of the focuses um when our beloved uh lobbying act comes up for statutory review in the next likely six months well yeah pretty soon well i yeah i mean who knows if that'll actually happen at this point just because it's uh there's, there's that clock running down from well election, but... I, I think the review will happen but just not i mean it is anything, like it, it is statutorily anything post, anything post yeah. review it is statutorily required to happen the house of commons has to direct a committee to to take it up yes uh, but that has not happened yet yeah I, I don't expect to see amended legislation with the liberals being super responsive to the lobbying act yeah um, prior to the election when they have many other priorities. On well, especially when it's an Achilles heel for them. Like, they don't want people talking about liberals yeah. and lobbying, really, for most of 2019, I would imagine. That That is fair. Yeah. Um, anything to add to the 20% rule? I think it's a very odd... Like, I, they clearly looked at the federal law and were like, that 20% rule is weird. And I, many people have pointed out that the 20% rule is weird. And then came up with an even, I think, weirder... I mean, okay. 
in in a sense, it's very absolute and very clear, right? Like there is that. Uh, I think, and it, it probably would lead to erring on the side of registering, which is like not. I I don't really think it's a bad thing. It's it's not that difficult to comply with the registry requirements. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's work, but like you're well remunerated for it. It's, like, it's, it's not the end of the world. It's harder than you think. Like it, it's not the end of the world. It's, people, it's not, people make it work. It's. I'm. I'm just saying it is. It is not a perfect system. It is. It is harder than one thinks. Okay. Well, let's let's even let let's say even if there could be tweaks, it it really like is not going to be like the the consulting firm is not going to pack up and move to Washington D.C. Let's put it that way. <laughs> The business environment here is just too toxic. Yeah, We're just... Yes. Actually, it's really good for you guys when the business environment is toxic. So. Uh, you guys love that. Because you can complain and uh, get meetings. It's great. People come to you with problems. This is really... Never, never. It's actually quite the opposite of political staffing, where you want people to come to you with solutions. And in consulting, I guess you really want people to come to you with problems. Well... No, you, you well, do... they, they come to you with problems, yeah, but, I guess. And then collectively you devise the solutions and present those to government. Yes. That's sort of how it goes. Yeah. But... There should really be a lobbyist lobby. It would be very funny. There probably is. Well, I mean, there's the there's GRIC, which is the Government Relations Industry Institute of Canada. Institute, yeah. I, I think the I is Institute, okay. which is the organization that represents uh, lobbyists That's collect- really collectively on some of these issues. The lobby lobby. Um, and I imagine they will have things to say when yes. the Loving Act comes up for review. But if you read um, 1980-somethings, The Insiders, um, they talk about how the history... The only of, book on lobbying pretty much ever yeah, read. I, 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 it's I, not the only book, but it's like really one of the it's only It's very much the only one. Yeah. Uh, I say this time and again, that it is... Uh, I mean, one of the things they talk about at several points is how lobbyists have coordinated themselves to lobby against various... Cha- or for or against... Uh, various changes to lobbying requirements from the quote-unquote uh, business card bill, which is one of the initial forms of the Lobbying Act, to yeah. its current iteration. Although it's from the 80s, so it's it's a hard cap on when the book was published. Yes. Um, but since since that time, there has been very little written about lobbying in Canada. A, a gap that will perhaps someday be filled by people who are not us, because we're not going to write books. I can barely read. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> I think that'll do it for us this week, really. Yeah, uh, we're yeah we're, we're doing fine. Um, so yeah, short short episode this week in light. It's of, not that short. It's like nearly fifty minutes. <laughs> like, <laughs> short episode this week in light of Laurent's knock to the head. Yes. Um, we are having a super special uh, episode next week around this time. It'll be out by this time next week. Um, with our, what, I think, has it been over a year since we did it? Probably our annual parliamentary trivia episode. Well, last time we did it, there was the season one finale, and it was after the uh, 2017 Rising of the House. That was the last time we did that. Okay, well. So it's actually been some time, yes. This is, this is close enough. Yes. It'll, it'll be the uh, every year and a half-ish <laughs> Part parliamentary trivia episode, and we should have some special guests so long as they don't listen to this episode and cancel on us. Indeed. Well, that will do it for us this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. Our beer this week is actually a very special one. Uh, it is called Spencer. Is it just Spencer? Or? Spencer. Spencer Monk's Reserve, which is an Ameri- from American Trappist Brewery. Is that the name of the brewery? No. The, um, the name of the brewery is Spencer. Spencer. Okay. The large, the large font. Oh, I don't know. The small font say? is descriptive, and American it's telling Trappist you that it is an American Trappist. Laurent, yes. tell me everything you know about Trappist monks. They are they are monks. Yes. The first order. Go further. Like, the fir- like typically, the, the orders are named after their mother house, if you're talking about specific <laughs> orders. So while, like, for instance, you talk about the Cistercian monks, is because the first, uh, the, the mother house of the Cistercian order is in... Uh, um, Oh, God, I've forgotten. But the Carthusian one... God, you look dumb if you can't tell me where the Carthusian monks come from. Uh, Chartreuse in the Alps, which is also where the liquor is from. Chartreuse. made by the monks. Back to the Trappists. Yes. What can you tell me about the Trappists? Not a whole lot, honestly. I know they make a lot of beer, and that has been their sort of uh, calling for, for quite a long time. So if you, people for, for people who are unaware, uh, the rule of St. Benedict sort of uh, requires you to have some sort of manual craft uh, as part of your sort of daily life sort of split it between contemplation, uh, which is typically either uh, study or, off, you know, stu- yeah, often studying, prayer, etc. 
Um, usually when you're, you're at dinner, someone is reading from, uh, from you know, the Bible somewhere. Uh, we're often the rule of St. Benedict, actually, will be, will be read out. I believe the Trappists are a sort of suborder of the Benedictines. So yeah, yeah, you're I'm looking sure at me as if, as if I have any I'm pretty idea. sure that's correct. Yeah, because they, they took up the manual labor thing. Yes, yeah, so that, that is definitely the case. Uh, often the sort of manual labor will come in the form of like beekeeping, cheese making. Uh, a lot of it in the Middle Ages was manuscript copying, which is where you get all these lovely like uh, illuminated manuscripts with snails, there are uh, with knights jousting on them, that kind of thing. None, and some of them make beer. There are nuns in Spain who makes like sweets. I don't I don't know if that's related, but it's very similar at least. Um, and of of okay, so now we're in the beer part of yes. monks. Um, so I can speak to that. There are a number of Trappist monasteries across primarily Belgium that brew, quote-unquote, Trappist beers, which have very distinct names and flavor profiles. Uh, doubles, triples, quadruples. With two Ps, except for the triples, I think. Yes. Yes, oddly. And the quadruples. Do they not? Okay, whatever. Um, I'm, I, I mean, think I, you're right, actually. I'm, yes. I'm looking at the labels. I'm definitely yes. right. Uh, <laughs> and for a very long time, the certification of a Trappist beer was something that they kept uh, very close-knit. They've since gone on to start um, certifying other Trappist breweries. I think there's one in the UK that's been certified, and Spencer is the first one uh, certified in the United States. Well, I can hand it to the monks there. Uh, they are they are very good at making beer because this is a, a lovely, lovely thing to drink. Yeah, it is very good. Dark beer, chocolatey, caramelly, all not really the best like, flavors. I would say it's not like a stout, though. It's much more like ale body than, than like that really stout, like full, really malty, creamy body. Yes, quads are not stouts. Yeah, so it was interesting in that you do have a stout, stouty flavor profile, but with a much more like... Yeah. With, with more of a caramel than you'd normally find in a stout. Yeah, I think that's fair. But yeah. a much more like an ale kind of like body and, and presence to it. So very interesting. 10.2% though, which wow, that is a, that is quite a beer. <laughs> the strongest beer I ever had was 16.5. It doesn't even really sound good at that point, to be honest. Although you can get Sir, uh, not Sir John A, uh, Samuel Adams beers, uh, whose names I'm forgetting. They make these super special beers that are sold at like... I think they're sold for about 150 bucks. Okay, reasonable. They come in a just get scotch in them. They, they come in a copper tin and they're 40 percent alcohol, roughly. Okay, so that's they are liquor. They are effectively <laughs> a liquor. Um, what are they called? They're called Samuel Adams Utopias. I see. Um, and I have yet to find one, but periodically the LCBF does sell some of them. So mm. it's if you're a fan, please send us one on, on my wish list. <laughs> Indeed. Well, that will do it for us this week. Uh, thank you once again for listening. You can follow us at Short Pants Pod. Uh, and please do recommend uh, this show to your friends and family as you harangue them over your whatever your pet issue is over the Christmas holiday. Yes. do Please do that. Goodbye, friends. <laughs>